Welcome back to the AEC Hive, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, director at ArcDocs and co-founder of the AEC Hive. Hi, everyone. This is John Egan, CEO of BIM Launcher and co-founder at AEC Hive. Looking forward to today's discussion. We're very excited today to have Dimitri Stefanescu from Speckle Systems. He's the founder of Speckle Systems to be with us today. Dimitri, you're very welcome. Can you give us a little bit of a background to yourself and to Speckle before we get started on the conversation? Yeah, sure. It's um, That might be a very long intro if you want to hear the story or the background of Speckle, but we'll, we'll try and I'll try and keep the rant short. So thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Dimitri. And yeah, my background is I graduated as, a, as, an, as an architect pretty much from Tio Delft University of Technology and Architecture. But I always kind of had a bit of a kind of hackish tint to myself. So back in high school, always coding up, uh, you know, WordPress uh, themes and other crappy websites for friends, so on and so forth. So I kind of brought that with me in, in the AEC space. And that's how in a sense, Speckle was was born. But that is a very short story of it. Like the long story is much longer. Well, just for, for people who haven't heard of Speckle before, like just for, a, you know, in a simple way for people who don't, don't know what it does, or how would you yeah. describe it? We always fail at the elevator pitch. Like the most recent one that we have, it's always an iteration. So what is Speckle? Kind of the generic answer that we give, it's open source digital infrastructure for data specifically geared towards the AEC industry. Specifically, what it does, it helps with some, you know, simple quality of life uh, improvements for, let's say, Grasshopper and Dynamo users being able to quickly shuttle data from one software to the next. So it's based, we offer some sort of, let's say, a layer of interoperability. This kind of interoperability layer is more kind of a, we see it as a bit of a Trojan horse that helps get data into Speckle which by virtue of it being open source, extendable, you have a kind of an object-based API, you can build all sorts of magical things on top of this. So we've seen from embedded carbon calculator tools to automatic quantification stuff to all sorts of whatever, you know, people get to hack in a Python script. So so it's, it's a little bit like a, a broker of data, basically, sitting between multiple applications. Is that, is that a... A way yeah. of describing it? Yeah, that's a very good way of describing it, essentially. Oh, it also stores the data that it brokers around. So it's a bit of a kind of maybe, you know, a broker that dips into the pot. Uh, okay. why we, why we store this data is to be able to offer all sorts of, you know, infinite versioning, you know, API access to it so that you don't need to pay, you know, there were some like little memes going on on Twitter recently about all the tokens you need to buy for Autodesk Forge and stuff like this. So, um, well, the storing, I suppose, quite useful if people are using desktop tools because, you know, the desktop is you switch it on and you switch it off. But somebody on the other side might be working at a different time to you. So it's quite useful to have the data disconnected from the desktop tool. Yeah, it's, it's not only a matter of time zone, uh, Ralph. We see it also kind of a matter of uh, it, when it comes into Speckle, it's disconnected as well, essentially, from any of the political interests of the major industry players. So yeah. maybe I mentioned this before, but Speckle's open source through and through. So... Pretty much you can take it and run it on whatever old computer in a corner you want or on the cloud, wherever you want it. And also the format that we keep, we're, we're kind of vendor agnostic when it comes to these things. So we're not uh, beholden to Autodesk or Bentley. We're trying to stay in the middle. Yeah. That in itself must be a pretty hard challenge because each uh, software has its own proprietary data structure and you know, so you're having to deal with a lot of yeah different <laughs> di- different different data formats, different data schemas, antiquated APIs. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and even within software, you know, the users will you have different users that have their own way of creating things and doing things. So that must be an enormous challenge to to standardize yeah. data across, across so many vendors, so many users, so many. It is. It's. We see it as a kind of a Sisyphean battle that we're not expecting to solve, and you know, park it as market is solved and done, and that's it. And that's coming from multiple points of view. Like you, you know, communication language evolves continuously. 
throughout. There's no such things as a kind of fixed static language. And we need to keep up with that. And this happens like even on shorter timescales within a project or within as kind of relationships get built between, let's say, the architectural office and the general contractor. You know, they develop their own standards and ways of working together. And these evolve over time. So we need to offer that flexibility. It's true. What type of data? Because we always talk about three types of data in the AC sector. We have you know, graphical data. Uh, then you have the, the sort of alphanumeric or non-graphical data, which describe properties and attributes. And then we have documents. You know, so those are document or files that people share. Yeah. The three types of data that we always talk about in relation to them. So where specifically is Speckle sitting? Is it dealing with all three types of data? or specifically geometry or, or geometry and alphanumeric so we, data? We see it as dealing with geometry and any associated metadata, and we've had kind of a curious evolution over the time. Like right now, when when I met John, I think the first time it was Speckle, kind of pre-1.0 Speckle, like kind of a very alpha version of Speckle. It had a kind of very juvenile approach to things, partly because of the age of the author at the same time. And... Um, Basically, as it evolved and as contributors came across, like Matteo is my co-founder for the companies uh, that we built around Speckle, we kind of evolved how we're dealing with this data. And kind of to put it, uh, to kind of address the buckets, the types that you mentioned earlier, we're dealing with essentially geometry, but we're also dealing with, let's say, alphanumeric data. We mm-hmm. call that geometry and metadata. And what we've created in the 2.0 version of Speckle, it's kind of an object graph storage layer, ultimately. So this gives you the freedom to structure your data in any way you want, uh, regardless of if, whether it's geometry plus metadata, metadata inside of geometry, metadata that, you know, so it's like if you can imagine all the freedom that you have when using objects in JavaScript, we are offering that now to in, in Speckle as well. So if you want yeah. to, you know, structure your project, let's say, create a building, you put like stories in your building, maybe this would be the classic IFC way to, to do it. You can also go a different way and structure things by all the beams in the building. So we are giving it kind of a, we're trying to open up a bit of the, the black box of what these structures should be because technically they have uh, a common solution in Speckle. So it doesn't matter yeah. if it's one structure or another. Okay. And is the idea of the open source in Speckle is that other developers would build sort of discrete little applications on top of that. So if somebody wants to do something very specific and build a tool, but they needed a, a source of data to, to work it's, with, it's, that they would work, they would build that on top of that. On so that's definitely a direct result of us being open source. It's essentially Speckle. You can see it as a like a Forge platform that you can own its in its entirety. But the kind of the, let's say, impetus behind open, why Speckle is open source came, originally it was a very naive assumption that you make something open source, then people will start contributing. So improving the software, you know, contributing code, contributing issues. This is only partially valid. But then what we've realized is that open source kind of wins hearts and minds. So it gives essentially guarantees of continuation. It gives guarantees of ownership. And it allows us to create kind of a community of speckle users, let's say, that Essentially, is not like kind of a community that enriches a closed source ecosystem. It's an open ecosystem, ultimately, in which everybody can partake in this value that we're creating, hopefully, for the AC industry. I think a lot yeah. of people have questions when it comes to open source about like, what's the business model? Because at the end of the day, <laughs> people people are investing time, investing efforts, and you know, and they have to make a living and. Yeah, pay the bills, all, get the lights kind of, on. Yeah, yeah, so there obviously needs to be some sort of business model behind it. And, you know, I, I think a, a lot of young developers, you know, it always sounds cool, open source and whatever, but then you think, well, how do I make a living out of 
<laughs> yeah, that's a that's a very good question, Rob. So yeah, Speckle. When I originally made it open source, I was a Marie Curie fellow at UCL. You know, lavishly paid by the European Union. So I had all those problems around paying bills and making a living kind of sorted out for me by others. Of course, that didn't last, <laughs> right? It's it's not uh, something that can go on forever. And then we realized it's quite hard, and there's several ways in which you can make money with open source. That is either through sponsorships, so that's one way of doing it, and there's all sorts of foundations, established foundations, like the Linux Foundation or the Apache Foundation, that essentially they manage all the sponsorships uh, for you. The problem with that is that you're you're putting yourself in a situation where do the sponsorships come from? And these sponsorships would come from usually big companies with interests that are kind of particular to to their interests, which is, is difficult. Nevertheless, like there are plenty of other examples within kind of the wider tech world of open source companies making it out, right? There's MongoDB, which is one of the a very widely used database. Now it's switched to a kind of a less open source license. It's a kind of a more open source for everybody besides AW, besides Amazon license kind of. Um, <laughs> the same goes the same goes for Elastic, Sentry, and so on. But there's a like. Maybe one that might resonate is GitLab, which is a open core alternative to GitHub. Their core uh, offering is open source that you can already use out of the box, deploy it on your own servers with no no costs. But what they offer is one software as a service, so you can pay them to host it for you. And this is something that we're doing as well. And then there is also kind of the the added kind of closed core that they've built around their open core, which is all sorts of proprietary features that only, let's say, executives need from various companies. We're not at that stage yet with Speckle, and we still don't know in which direction we're going to go. But our impetus is to kind of keep things as open source as possible. And our decision-making matrix is very simple right now. Because if a feature like would benefit everybody regardless or like you know technicians BIM managers you name it then it's going to be an open source feature it's not going to be closed source yeah. uh, if if that feature is something that would let's say only be useful to like five people within an organization and this would be like executive c-level then that feature is probably going to be closed source but we're yeah. not there yet okay i think uh, there's a lot of questions in my mind i suppose when you, when you talk about moving data Back and forth, and I suppose as an architect, you know, I'm thinking about responsibility of data, liability of data, trustworthiness mm-hmm. of, of, da- of data. Like who, as an architect, if data is moving into a pool, a data pool, if you like, and somebody else is then taking it and manipulating it, do they have the right to do that? Do they have the responsibility uh, the liability does it get quite tricky <laughs> it it does yeah, it does and this is this is something it's funny because we're at the stage now i mean the ac industry per se like and i know this from my time working in brussels as an architect doing like normal buildings we were very scared like if i would delay the construction site because we shipped the wrong pdf at one point that would be like i don't know a 10000 euro fine per day to the office right <laughs> that's like basically a lot of money uh, and ac the ac industry is quite adversarial when it comes to this what we're trying to do is kind of create a bit of a more like shift that a bit into a kind of a more of a collaborative way so diffuse a bit the responsibility so one increase the exchanges of information the frequency of information exchange as much as possible by simply making speckle very fast and doing object level control blah 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 so we've got a bunch of tricks up our sleeve i mean tricks they're they're in our repos but where we're seeing now that we're reaching a stage that People are asking these questions, like, how do I differentiate uh, this information snapshot from being working progress or being like kind of, okay, released or being shared or which stage is it in? And these are things that we purposefully didn't think about yet because we're trying to shape them up together with the community. We know that there are standards out there that we should most likely follow and most likely we'll fall back onto. But what we want to do is also kind of give people or like let's say give the stakeholders involved the chance to shape their own workflows as they see them fit. So we don't want to enforce a specific standard unless we really need to. We would much more rather give people the possibility to 
to create their own ways of doing things. And I think the perfect example here is like GitHub, like how do developers work together, right? We raise issues, those issues have labels, but there's no one true way of actually managing all this stuff, right? Every company has its own flavor of doing things and managing things and ensuring that there's a kind of quality process. Uh, the code that gets delivered is meet certain standards and builds. And we want to kind of reach the same place with Speckle where like we offer kind of the, the basic puzzle pieces that then can be assembled in multiple ways rather than just one. So this is where we're at. But other than that, like we are like at the same time, we are like the speckle per se keeps track who sent what to whom, who received what and when did they receive it and what application. So we are trying to also provide this information layer on which you could build this, let's say, future trust relationships, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important because, as I said earlier, that example of an architect worried that somebody might change data and mm-hmm. not have the not have the expertise or the, the even if they have the expertise but not have the the liability or the responsibility on a project to do that and then and then nobody picks it up you know because data is just flowing so quickly and yeah and yeah I mean, it gets picked doing... up at, picks up at a later stage when something goes wrong <laughs> and the, and then yeah people, I mean true and there there was this thing because like i mean there there was like this is something that's coming from my phd maybe like when i did a bit too much reading but there's you know there's community there's information exchange has a very technical tone to it right and interoperability it's a kind of a very abstract term and when you if you switch to actually communication which is kind of a both social and technical process you see that there are like some quite quite very well studied rules out there and one of these rules i mean of rules or mechanisms through which effective communication happens and one of these rules was like uh grice like i think uh english um professor 70s 60s anyway he said that information if it's not consumed if you're just publishing information and if it's not com- consumed in any meaningful way you're just adding noise to the system right <laughs> Yeah, because so, communication is two-way. Like, there's the people definitely. sort of pushing out the communication, but then somebody has to receive it and understand it. And you know, until that's happened, then you could you could say that the exchange hasn't happened. Exactly. You know? Until yeah, until you get that, you know. I mean, there's plenty so, of examples in like in. So WhatsApp, you s- you like, sent the email, but nobody's read it. Like. <laughs> Like yeah, a, yeah. Then, if, a, if a tree falls down in a forest and nobody's there. Who's, uh, who's, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So when, yeah, when doesn't, when does the exchange occur? When, or, when, uh, when uh, it went out or when it got received? And, yeah, there, there are, and this is kind of how Speckle was born, actually, like as a, as a means of kind of investigating these tricky parts around communicate, digital communication in AC rather than purely interoperability or purely data exchange or purely standards and how information is uh, structured. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, and, don't and ask John, me about my John, PhD. No, no, no. Yeah. And John, you, like, I suppose you're in a similar space with BIM Launcher in that maybe a different type of data because you focus more on the the files and the documents, yeah, but it's still the same, the same idea. Like, what are, what are your thoughts around moving data back and forth and the communications? My thoughts are that the protocols are in place, and we, you know, I think the industry have, I suppose, a big enough challenge with adopting one set of protocols. Never mind making their own. And what we do is we just with a data integration platform for construction project management solutions like Autodesk BIM 360, Procore, Oracle Aconex, Bentley ProjectWise. These systems are all used by different teams on different projects. They're all pushing and pulling documents from each system between each system. They're uploading multiple copies between different systems, and it's really chaotic. And all BIM Launcher does is sits in the middle and based on a set of pre-programmed rules, which is based on the information policy for the project, exchanges those documents between the different systems. Back to Dimitri and I's first conversations back in 2016. And one of the things that I had built an open source startup where we would essentially 
provide the components to the industry for them to be able to manage their project information. And one of the difficulties that we came across was that there was no developers in place to actually pick up these components that we built for people, push, piece them together and um, push them out there, you know, but we, I suppose get the intended value that we had invested in and around the abstractions embedded in these components. And I wanted to ask Dimitri now for five years on, um, what is your thoughts on that? Do you think that there is, a, you know, do you think that obviously with everything that you know about how complicated building software is and how much of a depth of knowledge and skills that you actually have or that you require to build production level uh, software, do you think that, you know, it's still a feasible approach to progress with open source and mm -hmm. I suppose push forward with a product under this this uh, premise that there's developers uh, that can, you know, pick it up. That's a good, yeah, that's a good question, John. Like I, I will answer by, cause John came to me and said like, hey, why don't you Dockerize Speckle? Like, cause then we can have it as part of, and then I was like, what Dockerize? I, I mean, I, I had no idea. I heard of Docker, but I had no idea how to touch that thing right at the time. <laughs> and I still kind of, I'm very flaky on that. And um, so, yeah, now we know what Docker is, essentially. We have a Docker image, you know, a Helm chart for Kubernetes, all that shit. Um, but to your question, John, like, I think open source at this stage, for us, it's more on... So I think, yes, it's valid, like, uh, definitely. I, I can't put a timeline on it, right? What we've noticed is that there's... Like expecting contributions to the core of Speckle, for example, or to the core of your product. That's something that we would have wanted, but they're not going to happen. Like, for example, on the server stuff, like, you know, we want to introduce new authentication rules, blah, blah, blah. That's complicated, deep level magic. You know, it will take maybe someone very smart to get onboarded for a month and then be able to contribute to it. But where we see contributions coming in now is like kind of extensions where we kind of made sure that we, are, you know, we prepared the ground for contributions to happen, right? We made sure that those parts of the API are extendable and nice and they're a pleasant experience to extend as well. So back then I thought people would just come out of nowhere, magically appear and start contributing to an open source project. Now what I know is that there's a lot of effort in you know, in preparing the ground to capture these contributions in the first place. And I think in AEC per se, like we're at kind of, I don't know, year two of this journey or like we're, we're barely starting on this, right? It's an industry that doesn't really know what open source is, doesn't know how to interact with it. Companies are very kind of careful around their IP. They don't want to share stuff, but you know, we see things happening, you know, structural models appear like new connectors being contributed by the community. So from my point, I, I can only put a smile on my face and see that, yeah, slowly five years on, <laughs> it's starting to slowly happen. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But, um, don't ask me like, uh, how long, <laughs> how, how long, yeah. Or, or when, when these will become kind of sustainable by themselves. Right. That's a lot of work in investing in the community, in the code base, in the education of your users to grow them up into contributors. These are all things we're trying to do as best as uh, as best as we can. But yeah. Well, you move. So anyway, you're moving in the right direction. I suppose it's it's increasing, and so um, so you can't yes. maybe you can't control the pace, but it's going in the right direction. Yeah, John is, is, John has a tricky question. He would ask, is that sustainable now? And I, I don't know yeah. if, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a, like from our perspective, we were running our platform on Kubernetes and we've moved away from it completely to, to AWS managed services and our, and our attention is on running no software. That, that's the goal. No code is what we want. Like, yeah. Whereas with open source, you find yourself 
um, maintaining and or not maintaining, but uh, you know, a lot more invested in technology components that are lower down the stack that potentially, you know, that do cause an overhead, you know, and, and you do need the mm-hmm. skills and expertise to run and operate these things. So, yeah, it's an interesting kind of dilemma. Yeah, I think I in mean, your question there, John, like what I heard as well is that you were saying that the pool of people in the industry, in the AC industry, that could pick up these things and have the, the skills and ability to to participate in these projects or pick them up and use them or whatever is pretty small. Is that, that's more or less what you're saying. And yeah, you know, is, uh, is, is, that, is that pool growing? Is that the question? Well, uh, or? You see, my biggest problem was that, like, and to Dimitri's point, you know, like maintaining or, sorry, doing development around the components of the stack, like, uh, you know, like around the web sockets protocols, the authentication, the database, all that kind of stuff is so far removed from your typical, um, your typical developer, even, even the most far advanced guys in AEC, they've all been doing, they start, typically started their life out off doing some visual programming. They've got into some scripting within a component in that visual mm-hmm. programming language. And, and now they're a .NET developer and they're trying to almost, you know, work their way back from .NET to, you know, these technology components that have been de- developed by web developers over the last 10, 15 years. So I think that, like in Dimitri's point, there is a lot of, de- I can imagine there's a lot of developers around, like, you know, platforms like, you know, your desktop tools like Rhino, Revit, Blender, these kind of things, and you're seeing a lot of compo- or connectors come through for for these platforms. But yeah, I, th- I think um, there's certainly the, of the developers within AC. I think that they are they have a, a they're more inclined towards a specific technology set, and or uh, sorry. A, a, specific uh, skill set based around mm-hmm. these technologies that they've come through the ranks to develop skills around and they're not necessarily always complementary to the technology components that Dimitri has put a lot of work and effort into open sourcing and that's why I'm wondering uh, you know I suppose touching on the sustainability uh, point there because from my view what I want to do is cut away all that low level stuff and just get right up to the to the highest level interface that I can to do what I need to deliver the value for my customers. And yeah, I mean we we agree with this the, regarding the skill set difference. And there's a definitely an impotence mismatch between what's available in the industry, let's say now, and essentially what kind of skills are required to contribute to the core of Speckle, let's say. But when it comes, we're essentially here. That's why we're we're building that core. Essentially, our view there is that we're trying to curate a developer platform that's as kind of uh, smooth and easy to use for the industry with its existing skill sets rather than actually having people to deal with all the nitty-gritty protocols, authentication stuff. You know, they could just write speckle.send my object and it's done, right? And the same goes also for like building scaffolding web applications on top of Speckle. We're trying to provide kind of the bare bones infrastructure that other people can then easily be productive without needing to know like, okay, how do we deal with closures in a database? Is this table indexed properly and all that crap? Right. We're trying to curate the contributions uh, essentially to where people can be productive. And we also tend to try and hire people who are getting to contribute to the core of Speckle because then we're lucky, you know. <laughs> I always go back as a as an architect. I mean, I've been in the business for a long time, but yeah, if you, if you go back enough in enough years, there was a time where the exchange was quite slow and formal. So on a day, on a particular day in time, people would meet in a room. Everybody would have their sets of drawings on a ta- on a table, and you know, you'd open the drawings and the Start architect with would that, with sign, a, sign yeah. the drawing, 
Oh, yes. And the client will put a stamp on to say that they've received mm. the drawing and also have a signature. Yeah, and that, yes. That was the, the transaction was recorded then, and that that drawing was folded up and mm. you know put into a box as a record. Yeah. So. Yes. And I mean that could be relied on then in in court if if there was a dispute, you could mm-hmm. bring out the signed drawings and say on such and such a day you they were you received, received by the drawing, yeah. you signed it you. Just to say that you've approved it, and yeah, that. And I think what's happening now with technology is we we can speed up that process. We can, but we can, and but not lose the uh, the rigor and the formality of of that transaction. Yeah, Agreed. So, yeah, yes. so you can bring that you can bring that down to the object level. So instead of have, signing off a whole drawing that's complete. You could sign off a, Stop an object. The structure. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or like the set of doors that, you know, like someone just specified in their Revit file. Totally. And I think, you know, these things could become like kind of more of a, from, from this very visible act that you described. Like, you know, I, I was the intern folding the sheets afterwards, by the way, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stage. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know? Um, you know, so from, from this very formal act, you know, like quite ceremonious, it becomes more of a kind of informal, the way we exchange messages on a WhatsApp group. So the logs are there. The information is there of who received what and when. It's just that you don't have to pay that much attention to it anymore. Right. Well, you can also, you can spread out the, the, that, that approval process. Basically, let's say there's a thousand things in a project that have to get approved. Yeah, in the yes. old days, you had you had to wait till all thousand were correct on the drawing, and then you know there, there was that final approval. Whereas now, with digital technologies, you can say, well, we can approve those thousand things individually at at different points in time. So we can sign off on the layout of the spaces, we can sign off on the the, uh, the components that are in in the spaces, yeah. you know, and and eventually, you know, the the ultimate sign off of everything is is gradually progressed. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and that's very interesting. But the technology can still record all those transactions. So I suppose my question to you and Speckle was, you know, what's happening in the background when you're pulling and pushing the data? I mean, is at that level where it's recording that sort mm-hmm. of level of transaction that people could refer back to and say, you know, on the 26th of August, you uploaded a door and Definitely. it's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yes. Actually, yes. We, we've never seen, we, we, we never phrase this in, in, in such an adversarial way, like with, with it's your problem. But I, I think that's just the way we kind of communicate things. But yes, essentially, yes. Every time you push data to Speckle back and forth, uh, we know who pushed what. I mean, Speckle knows, you know, everybody else who's involved within that data repository will know that you pushed that door specifically. And as well, they will be able to check, let's say in 10 days from now, if you've shuffled that door around, they will be able to check that, okay, Dim actually just replaced at you know the fire rating on this door was supposed to be i don't know one hour and he accidentally replaced it with something that with a door that's like got 30 minutes on it right yeah try, and these try are to th- sneak in a cheaper door <laughs> i yeah maybe you know like <laughs> a cheaper door with an with a nicer door handle you know i mean yeah. um but these things are are locked in speckle and partly some other things we're, we're willing to find out, right? So there was this very interesting discussion that we had about the, you know, the whole after the Grenfell stuff, right? The whole golden thread part became a big, um, a big issue, right? Like who took what decisions when? And I mean, on our side, we can help with that. It's, it's again, you know, this golden thread is, is never really this perfectly, you know, shining piece of golden thread <laughs> that's uh, strong between, um, a and B, but, uh, you know, we can contribute some parts of it at least, like see who made what changes and yeah, to be judged not by us, whether those changes were good or bad, but, um, yeah, but the, the changes are recorded. Yeah. I mean, one of the other problems, I suppose, if you go back to the previous way of working was often you had the wrong person producing the wrong information at the wrong time. Yeah. And to give you an example of that, you might have a an architect drawing a door, which is kind of generic to indicate that it's a door, but it's not a functional door that can actually be purchased because the, the architect doesn't know what's you know, what, what's available. And and so 
yeah, at some point in time, somebody's got to make a decision on what door to actually put there, uh, and then you know that door has to get purchased, and and so you know you'd say, well, wouldn't it have been better for the manufacturer to give the door to the architect at the beginning? <laughs> and let them put the door in, and then you, the architect wouldn't have to waste his time drawing generic doors, which ultimately were going to be replaced anyway. Um, mm. And <laughs> yeah, the, the architect could rather spend their time doing more important things like creating space yeah. and yeah, making yeah, a, a be- making a beautiful building instead of doing door schedules. <laughs> oh my God, tell me about it. Like this is one thing that I remember from back in my time as an architect. That I remember hating. Like we've always there was so much like kind of inefficiency, and you were like you know drawing a bunch of plans, but you're still or making some assumptions because you're still waiting for the structural engineer to give you like okay, you know, did the, do we need to demolish this old core or not? We still didn't know. We made assumptions whether the core needs to be demolished. We said it's not going to be demolished. And of course, you produce a set of quite detailed plans because you have to give them to the client so he can start making his estimations and blah, blah, blah. And then one week later, the, you know, the structural engineer says, okay, guys, the analysis results came in, like, this core needs to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, and then basically, you just throw out the window, like, a, a, a week or more worth of work. So I hear you when you say this and kind of where our dream would be, like, you know, like, in... When you do, when you write code, and John knows this, like you, you've got like automatic checks that you can set for your code to pass through in the background. And this is where we're seeing a future where like as you, the architect, the structural engineer, whoever is like sketching stuff, you can already get like, let's say preliminary automated feedback on what you're doing. Like, am I within the square meters? Do I have the zoning right? Do I have the amount number of one bedroom apartments in this bloody building or not? Right. And like this, you can actually take it like, or am I within cost? Right. Because I'm using these doors that came from this manufacturer and then these doors cost kind of this much. Right. Am I now spiraling out of control or not? You know, yeah, and this is where we hope to end up, let's say, nearer future rather than later. Yeah. So if you had to say, like, what's what's the big problem that you're trying to solve? Like, how would you sum it up? <laughs> how would I sum up the big problem that we're trying to solve? Let's say democratic access to data. And when I mean data, is, yeah, it's actually very simple. So we speckle started, like, out of also kind of a reason to scratch our own chest, right? And us as AC developers, we always wanted to have like a simple query mechanism for a Revit file to get to create a door schedule, right? <laughs> it's a very simple problem. Like from this bloody Revit file, can you please tell me, like give me all the doors, you know? And the process of doing that is either through a very complicated Revit plugin, there's no way to get it. Let's say you could probably get it now possibly from Forge, maybe rather efficiently, but then like Forge costs, I don't know how many tokens or have I used up my tokens is going on, you know, and then we're living as kind of non-AC developers, we're living in this wonderful world of like super easy, super fast APIs that just give you what you want when you want them, regardless of data formats and so on, because those we can wrangle ourselves. So ultimately, this is where what we're trying to solve with Speckle. That's kind of Speckle, the developer platform that we then use to build Speckle, the product. Who's the customer? Like, Because you're creating a platform and that obviously means somebody who has enough technical ability to you know, spin up servers and mm, set yes. up platform you know, software and create APIs, and you know, which wouldn't be your general architects, engineers, contractors. So... Who's your customer? Is this a very specific group of sort of highly Actually, technical people within the AC sector or? Not really. So we run Speckle. Speckle is an open source project. Speckle is also a company that sells managed instances of Speckle, but um, we see Speckle as a product, right? So we're trying to run an open source project, but as a product. So we have a lot of kind of, uh, Let's say like the, the stalwart users of Speckle are these computational developers, dynamo hackers, grasshopper wizards, kind of what we see, kind of the, the, um, where we see actually Again, the future it, of it, this industry. Yeah. So, but and then, then what you mentioned there, that that's a very small group of people. 
you know, Dynamo Hackers. Uh, yeah, it is, but it's get, it's it is, but it's getting bigger. And then we're also so then we're also from that we it spreads out. We're also serving people who just want to get their Rhino lines, their Rhino Poly lines into Revit as floors. We're also serving these people as well. We're also serving people who just want to see their Revit model in a browser within their lifespan rather than and with as few clicks as possible. Again, that's something that we serve. Like kind of when it comes to, these are our users though, so people that actually use Speckle. When it comes to customers, there's a difference and our customers are kind of at the moment, they are essentially big AC corporations, companies that actually what they see in Speckle is uh, a digital platform that they own. So this is Royal Haskening, Arup, for example. Why did they adopt Speckle and why do they love it? It's because they can make it theirs and they are they have the certainty that it won't be taken away from them anytime soon or in any way possible. They kind of use Speckle to scaffold all sorts of crazy digital workflows, tailor them to their specific uh, needs, as well as to kind of create, uh, like upskill some of their employees, you know, like give their employees kind of a common ground on which to learn how to hack and like start, you know, interacting with the more advanced digital techniques that they want to push. Uh, and these would be our customers. And even then, some of these are not our customers because we've made sure that the Speckle server is rather easy to deploy. So you don't really need to, you know, like marshal a whole IT department, a 10 people IT department to, to keep your Speckle servers alive. Yeah. It literally takes five minutes sometimes, depending. But, um, yeah, these would be our customers and users. Yeah. We like to see them more as users rather than customers. Yeah, very good. Speckle is a, a startup, and I mean, a lot of the audience in AEC Hive are people who have great ideas for innovation, and and they're just not sure how to get that journey started. Like, what's your? Give us a little bit of your journey as a mm. as a startup, and you know, like, what encouragement or advice would you give to <clears throat> to to people out there who Oof. who have an idea and they're thinking, well, how do I pursue this? How do I well, man, it's uh, like here, like I'm. Um, don't do it. Would be my first advice. I mean, don't <laughs> unless you know what you're signing up for. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah. But no, I mean, if you're passionate and so on, like, like this is. I I usually try and give negative advice. Don't do this. Don't do this because it's gonna end in tears, like it did for me. Positive advice is a bit more difficult to squeeze out. Without, I mean, with the obvious caveat that you know this is one very lucky path. So like what we've done involves a lot of grit that we needed to have. Essentially, it was also about finding the right people because it's not easy when you go around to investors and you say like, hey, you know, I've got, we want to transform AEC and then blah, 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 you discuss a bit. And then the obvious, the obvious question comes, what's your defensibility? And then you're like, oh, you know, with your finger in your nose, you're like, oh, speckles open source, like, uh, there's not really any defensibility. So you need to find the right people as well who understand the space, understand AEC, who are willing to allow for it pace of innovation, which is not, you know, the classic journey of like from rags to riches that you usually see in, let's say, Silicon Valley startups. And I think it's very important to stay close to your users and kind of like try many small things fast, see what sticks and start building on top of them before you end up with with one big product that actually, you know, you show it to everybody the first time and nobody wants to use it. Or like everybody's like too shocked. This is again a lesson that we learned. Like we have to pace out what we're putting out with Speckle because if we put out too many new things, people just freak out. There's like attention overload and then boom. Yeah, and then AEC stops stops responding in a sense that he don't nothing. But I think he's been through some of these things as well. So that's and then yeah, what we're trying to do, and maybe you you know Hyper right? Like Hyper is such a cool thing. Like it's it's way out there in the future, and they're like they're operating from that point of view where they are they're in the future and they're building slowly bridges to the past as we go. We strategically took a different approach. Right. Though we admire Hyper's approach, we took a like kind of a more conservative approach there where we're like, actually, OK, let's start from where we're at now, the, the past, so to say, because we're now in startup terms. Everything is the past. Right. Mm-hmm. You're all way behind on tech. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're starting from the present and starting trying to build to the future. So I think 
taking into account what exists in AC already, the standards that are out there, what people expect things to work like, and trying to nudge them to where your vision takes you with small steps that you can easily, you know, quantify and not tie yourself. That's how I would approach it. And also, well, like, I mean, we don't want to yeah. completely discourage innovation because, like, all human progress is through innovation. Of you know, course, you can't you can't just keep things as they are because even through entropy, you know, everything will degrade. Even if you do nothing, if you think you're doing well and you do nothing, it will eventually be bad anyway. So, bad. Yes, so, it will. So we do want to encourage people to be innovative. And, but what, I think what you're saying is um, it's, not, it's not easy. Like it's because you, you're be, challenging the status quo. And you, yeah, and you should be smart, sneaky, and political about how you challenge the status quo, how you move forward, how you describe your innovation, how you parcel it out in, you know, in under certain dosages, you know, like shot one of Pfizer, then okay, so, you know, two months later, there's time for shot two, three months later, shot three. So like kind of parcel it out into digestible chunks rather than slapping it in the face of users. Right. Yeah. Good. You and John are going to be participating in the upcoming BIM Coordinator Summit um, on the topic of technology and interoperability and how that is supporting um, information management. Like, Can you give us a, a sneak preview on what you guys are going to be discussing? Sure. So my, my plan actually was like, because I, I don't really want to sell Speckle. We usually let Speckle sell itself. So my plan was to actually kind of maybe start a bit of a discussion around kind of how we discuss interoperability and what we, we touched on briefly before, like, you know, information exchange versus communication, like where, you know, like how did essentially the BIM world evolve from, let's say, how is this process seen right now? You know, and I'm going to make some like a, a, a cheesy, maybe provocative statement right now. And I'm going to say like, yeah, we're looking at this from a very technical point of view. Like what if we would look at it from a more social point of view? You know, this is kind of my plans for that chat. Mm. Subject to change. Thank you, and from yeah. my side, um, sorry, I was just looking up my um, speaker proposal that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> what am I talking about? Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be talking about the future of data integration and in particular between common data environments um, or within the common data environment and how we see that evolving uh, from a BIM launcher perspective, I think that is going to be a really great opportunity to have Dimitri and, and Speckle and BIM launcher come together because, you know, my rather simplistic view of Speckle is that it really empowers collaboration at the design phase, whereas I would like to see BIM launcher as kind of taking the output of Speckle, which, you know, everyone has collaborated. They've done this amazing design process in Speckle, and then they turn to PDFing everything. And that's where Food <laughs> Launcher comes into play, is just picking these PDFs and making sure all the all the teams downstream of Speckle have, have the information that they need when they need it. And you don't have to have document control roles uh, worrying about double handling information, putting a copy in my SharePoint and then in the client's A-Connect system, etc. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that because, like, to be honest, like, we're these young pups, let's say, that we are, have been blissfully ignorant of all that world, John, so far, essentially, right? So we are studiously in, on one hand, we're studiously ignoring it. On the other hand, we're, we're, we're trying to, to interact with it, but we still don't know how. So I think it's going to be a super cool conversation. Yeah. I mean, when I look at the two companies and what you guys are doing and coming back to your point, Dimitri, about communication and this, uh, almost this two way exchange, because the, the, the communication is the two way exchange. And you could say that the industry has been pretty good at exchanging information in one direction. You know, so you, you export or you, <laughs> yes, and you, you have these, of, uh... and you, you throw something over the wall to somebody else and, you know, that's, <laughs> Job done. Communication mm -hmm. has happened, uh, but but that's not real communication. So I, I think what both of you are doing is saying, well, it's you've got to go beyond that one-way 
sort of throwing information at somebody else and leaving it up to them to sort it out. You know, it's making sure that they've received it and understood it and, and, and even take feedback and. Yes, and, exactly. That, that's very well put actually. And, and then like kind of making sure that you, in a sense, building a relationship with the other dude, you know, like, Hey, I've just dropped you all these datas and PDFs or whatever. I dropped you all these uh, snapshots, uh, these commits in Speckle or whatnot, you know. Uh, but then you maybe going one step further and asking, like, is this what you actually need to get your job done? Like, do you want me to yeah. simplify some stuff for you? You know, getting that dialogue, I think, is very important. Yeah. yeah so I like what you said there about communication being a, you know, a social thing. So just what you, that last statement of yours is fantastic because that doesn't happen in AC. People, nobody asks the other person, what can I do to make your job easier? Mm. Uh, as an architect, <laughs> I remember, I remember we, we did a workshop, I think it was about seven years ago now, but, um, where we got a whole design team together. And the, and the purpose of the workshop was to demonstrate to people how BIM could improve the interaction collaboration. Mm. And so it wasn't a real project, but because it wasn't yeah. a real project, we, we could we could transcend lines of you know, the normal lines of responsibility and everything. And I, I remember talking to a quantity surveyor and saying, as an architect, like, what would you like well, – to, to get from me, yeah, <laughs> yes. to to make this workshop really work well, yeah, so that we can really demonstrate a, a smooth collaborative uh, uh, workflow between design and quantification, for instance. And I thought that was funny because, like, for, you know, being an architect for thirty years and never <laughs> asking an, a quantitative like, what do you need to do your job? <laughs> just, yeah. just. Just throwing the drawings over the yes. wall and saying, there, there you go, good luck. When, when can I have the cost plan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Or the, or the site surveyors lobbing back over the fence at you, like all sorts of random uh, floating DWGs in uh, – uh, anyway, sorry, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think that, yeah, like the next phase of, of uh, information communication – would be making a two-way where both sides of the the transaction are getting some benefit. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And and here I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the solution there would be. We need to be a bit more, that's empathy, right? You empathize with with a surveyor, with a quantity surveyor when you're asking, so like, hey, what would you need from me? I think that's what we, in a sense, need to bring back, in a sense, a bit in AC, like going away from these very formal ER processes and all that stuff, you know, that's, that take, you know, they're, they're very formal, as you described the original, you know, signature stuff, this, this, that, this is a level of detail, blah, 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 you know, everybody's kind of on their toes. And then you end up just lobbing them over the fence, ultimately, <laughs> like as you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to the conference and, and taking the discussion further. I think, um, yeah, it's really fascinating where, where things that, where the technology is moving and the opening up of, of, well, maybe the separating of data from software, which is, is, is mm-hmm. really interesting because it, it just opens up so many op- opportunities for people to do very specific and bespoke things and not be limited by yeah, the capabilities. One vendor support. or another. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, from my side, I just want to thank you for your time today, Dimitri, and um, we look forward to continuing this discussion. So, thank you. Thank you both for having me, and um, um, I'll, I'll see you in October soon. <laughs> Thanks, Yep. Dimitri. Yep. Ciao, guys. <laughs>